Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Poema Podcast. Um, it's really great to be here. Um, I've got a couple of guests with me today. Um, really excited to have them with me. Um, it's Kate Hendricks Thomas, who um, listeners of my old podcast will know, um, and uh, Carl Hamner. Um, so uh, welcome both of you. It's really great to have you on the podcast today. Um, just, so just kind of both introduce yourself a little bit about, talk about you know, who you are kind of and stuff and what you do. All right. Um, so my name is Kate Hendricks Thomas and I'm a public health researcher, uh, focused on issues of military mental fitness. I live out in lovely Charleston, South Carolina, and I've been working with Carl Hamner since I met him in an elevator and he talked me in to working on some super large projects with him. And, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. And, uh, I'm Carl Hammer. I'm Assistant Dean of Research for the uh, University of Alabama School of Social Work and Director of the Office of Evaluation for the University of Alabama's College of Education. Um, and as, as Kate um, said, we met because I was talking to her in an elevator. <laughs> and uh, we just said hello. Um, I found out she was a veteran and um, a, a doctoral student here at UA at the time and uh, talked to her about some work we were doing in this area. Um, I, uh, we've had uh, two years of success, like Kate was a big contributor and part of my leadership team for running the um, Service Member to the Civilian Summit in uh, 2015 and 2016 where we brought in experts from around the nation to talk about military to civilian transitions and how to improve them. And so uh, I'm really interested in issues about um, military-civilian transition, social identity, and um, issues around moral injury and spirituality. Oh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. And I know that Kate's your work is a bit has is very similar, isn't it? Although it's, there's a, um, a bit of a different other other elements to it. Just briefly, kind of uh, just unpack your your work. Those three stages that you've talked about before with me, um, just for those who haven't heard before. Well, I spend my time thinking about how we can improve the reintegration process for military veterans before they become military veterans, which really comes down to the question of mental fitness training. Mm -hmm. And about a third of the population is naturally resilient. The rest of us can cultivate resilience. And you do that a couple different ways. And I, I, like, uh, <laughs> I like simplifying things. So I talk about it in terms of self-care, self-regulation practices, social support cultivation, and then spiritual practices. So under those three kind of umbrellas is some very real behavioral medicine possibility that's incredibly useful uh, for the military population. And uh, I've learned a great deal from Carl about getting beyond, so I'm, I'm a, I have a health background and it's very tempting for me to think neuroscience and movement practices and everything will be fine if we can just regulate the endocrine system. When really these issues of culture and identity and community are interrelated and, mm. and impact all of those, all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, a lot of the work that I do is about I mean, this, the, one of the things of this podcast is about the connections between um, creativity and identity and spirituality. And, um, 
I mean, I'm fascinated by the idea of identity. I've written a book about grace and about how grace is the beginning of our identities, about this concept that, you know, this if we can believe that we're enough as we are, that actually frees us to explore our identity without fear. And um, so I think there's a lot of connecting ideas here. Um, certainly issues of identity and like personal wellness, self-care, um, spirituality. I think all of us have mentioned those three. Um, so, um, yeah, we'll talk, we're going to talk about those things, I think, today. That's what we're going to explore. And we'll see where it goes. Um, we'll leave it open and see where it goes. So, first, the thing, first thing I want to talk about is identity. Um, what, in terms of both of you, in terms of the work that you do, what are the issues that you encounter around identity, the struggles that people have, and the issues that you have to deal with with people? Um, Ken, if you don't mind, I'll jump in on this one. But uh, uh, one of the critical issues about social identity is that um, uh, research um, has shown, and uh, there's a whole field of social identity theory, uh, that really humans have a struggle for uh, two different drives regarding social um, identity, which is one is inclusiveness. They're looking for groups that they feel part of, that they feel included to. But the other is we have a, a fundamental need to be distinct, and this distinctiveness sort of counteracts those two pieces. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we find a group that provides that balance, we reach what we're called our optimal distinctiveness. And so it's a it's a very powerful tool, uh, and it's a big piece of our social interactions. We do a lot of in-group and out-group um, comparisons. We assess our own self-worth compared to other people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we see that a lot in American politics right now, right? We see that it is coming back on the the, the, the left and the right, a, a very big element right now. But that identity issue is really big, and so. Um, I would argue, and I think this literature would support, the military really provides that optimal balance between distinctiveness and inclusion. So it's a very powerful identity. And so when you leave your military service, it's usually abrupt and often very abrupt. And many people who make that transition, many veterans, will use phrases like my, my identity, my self, were, were ripped from me, I lost them. It's really a huge dramatic terminology. And so what happens is normally when we go through life and we make a, a major shifts in our life and we adopt new identities, you go from high school to college or, mm -hmm. or to a job and there's, there's often you know, graduation rituals and things like that. Those things mark those, and there's usually preparation for and after. Yet, we do a great job at building military identity. We do a very poor job in transitioning that identity to a post-service identity. So what happens is veterans come out into the civilian world again, and many of them are wondering who they are. How can they share their experiences in a world that doesn't understand what they've gone through? Especially for new veterans, I and mean, we're calling Afghanistan the forgotten war now. Yeah. So there's, you know, it's out of the news, it's out of the experience. It, we still have thousands um, and tens of thousands of people who are going over there and experiencing combat, stress, mm -hmm. etc. So for those people coming back, they feel isolated. Sure. And the identity issue is really important because 
if you are, um, uh, there's a term in the literature called identity foreclosure. If you do not, are not able to shed and to change your identity into a post-service identity, and you keep thinking of yourself as I'm in the military, even though the military is no longer part, you don't actually actively participate in it. So then you've got that problem of where do you belong? And, it, and it, I believe it really increases the social isolation of many veterans. Research shows that, for example, suicides among veterans are not predicted by combat exposure, but it is partially predicted by separation from the military. So I think this is a critical issue that we need to provide. And then before we can provide job support, before we can provide um, uh, financial assistance or any of these other material things that we know veterans need, if we don't provide transition support that helps them adapt their identities, I think that we're actually not going to be as successful as we need to be in these other arenas because they're not there. They still see themselves as a part of the military. And so they go and they seek out fellow veterans, especially like them, combat veterans and so forth, and they self-isolate. Yeah. So that's, their, that's where the identity piece comes in, is if you um, – we know that stress – and um, psychological challenges are associated when you have identities that don't that, that don't fit one of these drives or the other. If you don't have a, a good identity situation, you're going to be stressed, stressed, through some problems. Mm. When I think a lot of people can identify with that conversation, we, you know, we talk about it in terms of the military transition experience. And I'll just say what Dr. Hanner just described was my personal experience. I lived in an us world and a them world where the them was civilian. Civilian was a pejorative term. I mean, that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't a good thing. And that was incredibly unhealthy. But anytime we get really wrapped up in some sort of professional, social, cultural identity, um, you know, before I became, became a mom, I was a young, single, professional version of myself. Motherhood threw a bomb in the middle of that version and adjusting to the new identity. You know, if I hadn't gotten better at adaptation, I would have really struggled. Um, so I think these questions of, of transition are relevant to everybody. But military veterans especially, we can't, you know, we were talking about this today, we can't make that transition in a vacuum, in an isolated space, mm. where the only people we talk to are people with identical experience, background, and the exact same identity crises. Yeah, I agree. I think that's where the need for community comes in, isn't it? That you need to have people you're accountable to who will tell you that actually you're, you are more valuable than you think you are maybe and that there is a different role for you and that um can help you can help open the blinkers as it were and help you have a bigger perspective on things um I'm, I'm, it's fascinating to me um that we're talking about transitioning from the military into a different um a different role in a sense a different almost a, I mean, a different dimension of your identity you know and transitions are a kind of uh, are something that we we all go through. All of us go through transitions in our in our lives. You know, we all have seen. We all like, for for example, myself. I just quit my full time job, which I've been doing for thirteen years, um, and in the police. And now I'm transitioning into 
um, publishing a book and um, doing full-time writing coaching and that kind of thing. And that transition is um, it's difficult. It's it's something that I want to do and I'm enjoying it, but there's also it's also confronting issues in me of who I am and how I value myself and yeah, what what my identity is. And I think I think those kind of principles of um, how we deal with transitions between seasons in our lives or roles that we've played into different roles, um, I think they apply, there's a bigger application, isn't there, than just, I mean, obviously, it, it, your context is the military. Um, but would you say there's a, bigger, there's a bigger context that we can apply these principles to? Well, absolutely. But if you look at the, the, that kind of... It, it, uh, identity plays out in all sorts of areas, mm. and when you change identities uh, abruptly or without transition or without a sense of what are you next, it really can be stressful. If you look at suicides in the United States, the highest rate of suicide is in older um, white males, mm. and they more than right now it's more than any other group in the United States, and mostly these are men who have recently transitioned out of the workforce. And if you look at the industrial workforce, what is the typical, you know, it's no longer this big ceremony and a golden, you know, a golden pocket watch and a, and, a, and, a, and a handshake and say thank you. It's someone shows up at your desk and says, hey, Joe, you're not needed anymore and escorts you off mm. out of work. And, mm. abruptly. and in America, we have this immense sense of male identity being heavily tied to our work identity. So mm. we are what we do. And so when you take somebody and you take away that, and then they go out into the world where they're told they're not wanted anymore. And, and Kate, I think you'll find that in some of the, the post-military um, identity narratives too, is that they say, well, wait, I'm not wanted by my country anymore. I'm not needed for my skills. What am I now? And that is a very negative view of oneself. And suddenly your nation, your country, your your society doesn't value you anymore. Mm. That's a big yeah, And so I think that's a big piece of, of the, the why we have to address identity transitions. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I think it's really really important. And what so what do so what do you do to try and help people do that? What what practices? What kind of concepts do you use to help people do that? Okay. Well, um, I believe very strongly that at some point we need to be doing resilient trait cultivation training at the entry level. So right now when you leave the service, you're lucky if you get a four-day transition assistance class. Mm. You know, what if before you ever conceptualize, you know, walking into a civilian job, walking into a civilian uh, status or identity – what if at entry-level training you were learning the things that make you more resilient? So first and foremost, the baseline is that healthy tribe, the right type of not necessarily, um, I like to call it the echo chamber, the feedback chamber of people who think exactly like you, who agree with you every time you wanted to do something stupid. That's what I surrounded myself with for a long time. Mm. Other people who like to take everything to the extreme and we exacerbated one another's imbalances absolutely beautifully. So challenging yourself to find healthy uh, balanced relationship and kind of there are things you can do to learn uh, to learn how to have those 
uh, how to have those conversations, how to how to identify what is and is not a healthy relationship. We don't necessarily do that uh, for our young military members at the entry level. Family assistance and family programming is something you don't want to have to do because it means you've already hit the skid. Mm. Um, and so we would need to integrate that. That's the base level, the healthy tribe. Then there's the self-care practices, the understanding of the stress response, the self-regulatory practices that take you from on all the time to homeostatic, parasympathetic, restorative spaces. Everybody's got to find what works for them. And this is something that uh, I'm really, really interested in learning more about. Uh, we have to figure out what makes somebody spiritually fit. So the protective effect, I spent tons of money in the, in the military and in a lot of organizations getting people to quit smoking because smokers are expensive and they have all kinds of health issues. But there's more protective effect to a high level of subjective religiosity than to quitting a smoking habit. So how do we make people spiritually fit, knowing that there's tremendous mental health benefit and resiliency benefit for individuals? Um, so I'm passionate about getting that in from day one. Right now, I spend a lot of time with military veterans doing these immersions and retreats and um, like cohort-based classes that teach people this sort of thing after the fact. I learned it all by accident after my life had become the Jerry Springer show, and I would rather people learn it sooner. Yeah, that's right. I think um, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's interesting about spiritual fitness. I think that's some, there's definitely something in that. That we need to figure out what it is to be spiritually fit. Um, and it's hard to teach, right? I mean, yeah. I can tell you what works for me, but how do I say, this is my experience. I would like you to, as a cookie cutter, place it on your own life and thus you'll be spiritually fit. I don't think anybody's figured out exactly how do you, how do you assess it? How do you train for it? How do you make it, um, you know, adaptable? And, you know, we talk about bio-individuality. How do we make it uh, appropriate at the individual level? And hopefully, I think Dr. Hamner is going to figure that out for us. That's, his, that's a major <laughs> focus area for him. So we're trying to, so we're trying to understand these issues about um, uh, how is somebody uh, dealing with what they dealt with in war as they become civilians again. We know that people feel isolated by those experiences. We know that people talk about they've lost their moral compass, that they feel spiritually shattered, um, and things like that. Those are not uncommon terms. And you don't have to have, have something like PTSD or traumatic brain injury to address, to, to be grappling with these moral issues. I mean, we're really looking at this area of moral injury now in, in a greater focus. It's not a new concept, it's, it's an ancient concept. But also, you know, going back to your question of what are we doing on the ground, we're looking at how do we help people um, address some of those um, things that they feel isolate them, these burdens that they're carrying from their from their service uh, and their experiences. And so some groups are doing uh, rituals uh, that uh, um, uh, involve walking prayer labyrinths and trying to help people. Um, locally here we have a group that is doing these uh, turning point consultants and they're using them and they call them honor walks and they work with community members and service members to sit and walk through these burdens um, and ritualizing that idea of making the transition, walking the path. And whether you're religious or not, everybody's got spirit in one version or another. So 
how is that, um, how do we help them process that? As Kate said, we need to better understand what do we mean when we say spiritually fit? Because simply being, saying that I, I'm, you know, I'm religious in one way or another, I go to church uh, or whatever, doesn't mean that you're spiritually fit. It doesn't mean you're not grappling with your own demons. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think spiritually fit goes goes beyond talking about, um, and I say this as a Christian as well, I would say it goes beyond your faith, it goes beyond talking about um, whatever your religion is. Um, although obviously there's an element of spirituality about that. Um, but spiritually fit, I would say, I think it means, for me it would mean that you are at least working, you're at least confronting and working through those kind of issues with somebody that you're, you know, that, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm personally, I see a spiritual director every month and my spiritual director is also a trained therapist. Um, and I sit with her and I talk about, I talk about like demons from my past, my insecurities, my fears, you know, um, you know all the stuff that's going on inside of me and she and she talks to me from both a therapy perspective and also a spirit and a kind of faith perspective as well um but i think we need i think there's a lot of both that you need i don't think it's i would say spiritual fitness is when you're actually not numbing the pain with something when you're not like running away from it when you're not trying to hide behind because you can you can hide behind religion you can like you can use religion as a kind of way to numb your pain as a way to cover it all over and forget it's there um so you it's about to me it's about confronting those those things which are inside of you and actually talking them through and working them through in community whether that's with one other person or in a group um i think I don't think it's like I don't think it's like a place you get to. I think it's just a process that you continually walk through. Um, you know, it's like, I don't think there's a place where you can say, "Well, I'm now I'm spiritually fit and all my stuff is dealt with." But I think what you can do, like you're talking about, Kate, is you build up um, resilience. You build up, um, you know, ways to be more resilient, to, so that you can deal with whatever comes along in a healthier way. Um, well, and we, we got the chance a couple months ago to talk with Sarah, and Sarah and I, in the work that we do with veterans, we talk about uh, the unpleasantness of doing the work. And that's what you're talking about when you're talking about cultivating self-awareness, cultivating spiritual fitness, wading through the hard stuff. Mm. Um, and But with military veterans, you can't really talk about it. You know, you certainly can't even say the word therapy or, you know... <laughs> treatment or help. I mean, we just don't want to hear that nonsense. I can remember personally being in situations where I absolutely needed help. And if you had told me that, I would have probably threatened to break your nose. Um, you know, there are wow. tremendous stigma issues. Uh, there are tremendous stigma issues in the community. So what I find is that if we focus on fitness, mental fitness, spiritual fitness, performance maximization, you take away some of the it that is associated with the idea of, you know, uh, brokenness narratives in general. It doesn't work in a lot of communities. There are a lot of people who tell you, you can keep your couch, but that is, you're going to hear that from most military personnel. I mean, I, I think, you know, all over, all over the world. 
So what would you suggest to, like, for example, to someone who is either military or ex-military, who would have that response, that something that they would respond to? Um, what do you think they would respond to? That's I love, you know, this, this be- kind of betrays my bias and background, but I love to come at it from a, uh, a holistic perspective, starting typically with movement, starting with something fitness-y. So mindful movement is a great way to slow down, get in touch with what's going on with your heart and your head, and you just think we're going to work out. Now, you can talk, you know, you can talk military people into, okay, you know, Physical activity is good for you. Why? Because they trained for it. They were taught to appreciate it and be assessed on it from entry level. So we honor physical fitness because it's something that, you know, twice a year we all suffered through assessments for. Uh, Eventually, I'd like to see mental and spiritual fitness have that same place of honor. But Mm. with that particular community, I like to go the mindful movement practice because the barriers are already down when it comes to physical fitness, we are absolutely fine with spending time on that kind of uh, individual performance improvement. We see it as valuable. Uh, it's an incredible way. However, you know, when you when you do some kind of mindful movement, it's an incredible way to escalate a hyperactive nervous system. Mm. Yeah. Another thing that we could be doing and should be doing, or some people are already doing, is connecting to this, the positive elements of identity that are associated with military service um, and helping uh, uh, veterans connect in the civilian world where they can contribute, such as um, many veteran groups are now, um, uh, Mission Continues, uh, Team Rubicon, Team Red, White, and Blue, they're all looking at how do we connect with a veteran around a service idea? Uh, and it taps into that positive identity that they've still got something to contribute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from an individual piece, we need to let people know that there's still value to work, that they bring to the table, not just in terms of helping in a workplace, but helping in your community, that you really help improve with all the skills you've got, the leadership skills, the organizational skills, the things that... Um, were, were, you were uh, ingrained in you in the military. And so I think if we can do that sort of connection, we actually get veterans more um, uh, connected with uh, civilians. And I think that's one of those critical components is that, is that realization that they're in this together, and both on both sides. The other thing that we need to do, and this is a bigger challenge, is we need to change that veteran narrative and the way that we portray them, because the archetypes we create are either the veteran is a hero, or the veteran is broken and in a danger to themselves or others. Mm. And with those two archetypes, there are very few veterans who go out there and embrace those identities. They see that as that those are their options according to society, and that causes them to withdraw. Uh, So I think that, and and this is something that we have to recognize, is that, the majority of veterans don't uh, don't have major mental health problems. They've uh, they've transitioned well, but everybody's going to have some level of transition assistance that they need when they leave. And so this is part of it. I think is just also rejecting some of those uh, stereotypes that we've created about veterans and are sitting out there in culture. And if if I as a civilian 
don't want to have to deal with this very complex issue, I can go, oh, all right, here's what we say when they're either broken, let's give some money to a cause when I'm done. Or I go to heroes and we're going to tell them thank you for your service and you know do do a parade or something and then I'm done. Either way, I'm done. Right? That means I don't have to engage. Hmm. So as long as those stereotypes are out there, both being rejected by veterans and used as a convenient way not to engage by civilians, that's uh, a problem. Yeah, it seems to me it's about the, a lot of a lot of it's about the like you're saying the narrative that people tell themselves. It's the the story that people tell themselves about themselves and what their role is and who they are. Um, and uh, there's narratives about military veterans that don't work and that, um, and that people don't, uh, and, that military, and that veterans don't want, to kind of, don't want to kind of just fall into, that we need to create something more positive and something more constructive which can lead into a, a role outside of the military but still somehow keep hold of the best of what they've already, the identity that they've already had whilst they've been in the military. Like the ideas of service and the ideas of, um, yeah, that's what, that, that kind of thing. Um, well, and I think, I just want to echo, I think that pity is dangerous. And, mm. and anytime there's a cultural narrative of pity, there's distance. Uh, and I really like... I really like some of Eric Greitens, who is now the governor of Missouri, which is a strange turn of events. He used to be one of my favorite authors. But there's a quote in his book titled Resilience, uh, where he's talking to another veteran and he says, don't don't accept the pity. It's a kind poison. Don't drink it. And uh, I really like that phrase, a kind poison. And, and I think we can kind of culturally uh, create disadvantageous situations for, for anybody. Um, and I think we certainly have. And how do you see all these principles working themselves out? For I mean, a lot of people that are listening to this won't won't be military veterans. Um, so there's two things. How how can people who are not military veterans best embrace people who are into their communities? Um, and what's and how can we? What stories can we tell them that will that will make them feel wanted and welcome and valued and um, have a role to play? And and secondly, how can these principles of that we're using to apply to the military transitions, our identity, our sense of identity, and that kind of thing? How can they apply outside the military in a way that can help people who are maybe who are listening today? So There's like two questions there. Well, we talk a lot about the military-civilian drift, and I'm interested in the responsibility that veterans have to be resilient leaders, to, to be willing to hear what civilian community members have to say and have to offer. I know for me personally, um, again, I, I left the military with a very us-against-them attitude and you know, probably some <laughs> social adjustment issues. Let's use a euphemism there. Um, and what really helped me was getting into service work. And I realized, look at all these connected, caring civilian community members that are doing tremendous good. Uh, maybe the only way to matter in the world is not to be running convoys in Iraq. Maybe there are alternate paths to finding purpose. But I couldn't, another veteran couldn't demonstrate that to me. I had to learn that from a willing, caring community member who was willing 
um, to put their time into the equation. And I, I think that's incredibly important. So veterans have a responsibility to listen and to engage, but so do civilian community members mm. if we want to bridge the divide. Hmm. Yeah, Carl, do you have anything to say about that? Or? Well, I think the, the obligation of the civilian is not to treat it as um, simple or easy. Just thanking someone for their service doesn't do them uh, much good. It, it's in, you know, engaging people and letting them know that you're you're available to listen if someone wants to talk, but you know, not pressing them, uh, asking them if they'd like to, you know, if they're uh, if they'd like to talk about their service, but not um, coming up and doing the the faux pas of you know, hey, have you killed somebody? Have you any of the of these sorts of, of things that will push somebody back? Um, mm. But also. You know, thinking about how to engage them and say welcome to the this activity, or would you be willing to contribute here? Uh, what would you suggest in the following, um, you know, community project or whatever it is that's going on? So there's way there are ways to engage veterans and offer them opportunities and respect the the, the knowledge and the contributions uh, they can make. Uh, so I think that if you engage them from a perspective as partners as opposed to outsiders or, mm. you know, as, as Kate said, either objects of pity or um, uh, uh, icons to worship as opposed to real people mm. uh, who have a whole different set of skills but also have a strong sense of mission and a strong sense of service. Yeah. Yeah, and I love the way you talk about that. You're basically asking people to care enough to complicate the narrative. So you can't just celebrate and be done. You can't just pity and be done. Mm. You have to be willing to walk alongside someone. And um, yeah. for me, entering into the kind of community service space, the, the VS, the veteran service organization space, was incredibly cathartic. And there are people... Um, you know, there are people that will stalk you in an elevator and ask for your help on things, uh, doing doing really good work to bridge the gap. Um, so the first thing is caring, but don't care in a superficial way uh, and think you're done after a two-minute conversation. Yeah, really invest, need, need to really invest yeah. in somebody um, and be right. willing to walk the journey with them, I think, yeah. And again, that's where community comes in, isn't it? And where, you know, support comes in. Um for sure. Now, one other thing that I that I know that you do a lot of work on is um, the term moral injury and dealing with moral injury. Um, so, I mean, I've never heard that. I actually never heard that term before. So, just can you can you just kind of, Carl, can you just unpack that that term a bit for us and explain to us what it means and the work you do with it? Yeah. So, the concept of, of moral injury is that. Um, there's a uh, there are things that we train people to do as soldiers, as um, uh, as, as service members. And sorry, Kate. You know, I have to remember that it's not just soldiers in the room. But um, is this concept of um, a disruption, and this is. Um, uh, a definition taken from uh, uh, one of the leaders, um, his name is uh, Litz, 
whose um, uh, moral injury is a disruption of an individual's confidence and expectations about one's own or other motivation or capacity to behave in a just and ethical manner. So by bearing witness or uh, perceived immoral acts, failure to stop such actions or perpetrating those actions that are inhumane or cruel, depraved, brings about suffering and pain. And so to others, so you sit there and you go, oh, well, I did this. And I did it because that's how what I was trained to do. But when you think about it, you realize, well, that's not what a good person does. So you have this conflict between how you've been trained as a um, uh, as a member of the military versus how you grew up and were raised as a civilian, as a Christian, as a, a moral person. Um, and so there's that conflict and that creates a very big um, problem uh, for many people. Uh, so and that, it, it's a um, it can be precipitated by something that, that violates your deeply held moral beliefs, um, uh, perpetrating it uh, yourself, witnessing it, or being a victim. Um, you can have guilt, shame, and anger associated with these. Um, and that can lead to um, emotions such as anger and disgust, and, or uh, mistrust or you know, alienation and fatalism, uh, so that that separation and avoidance and social withdrawal that comes, so that it contributes to those issues. So with that in mind, I think we've really got to think about, and, and there, there's a variety of, of, of definitions of this in the literature, but the reality is, is that they all have fundamentally that same issue, is that there's some sort of moral transgression that you've witnessed, you've participated, you've perpetrated it, and you're left wondering, how can you be accepted by others? How can God ever forgive me for the, what I've done? I mean, these are, these are common um, concepts. Feelings of betrayal because you went in, you were told your your intelligence was good, and you made a call, and people died. Mm. You know, it, it, it's uh, 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 your government issued you faulty equipment, and people died, um, or were put at risk, or you felt that the cause you were engaged in was immoral, and you were told to put yourself and your people at risk. And so, those kinds of things, when you come home. Um, you have people who then start thinking that no one, including God, could possibly understand them or accept them. Mm. But really, they have to start thinking that moral. So that moral injury leads to this issue of how do we help them come to the terms that and accepting themselves and getting to some level of forgiveness through process. Mm. There's a really um, strong voice in this area um, on by Reverend Rita Nakashima Brock and her in her role. She has a Center for Soul Repair in Texas, and she's looking at that. And, and she feels that we really have to work strongly with, um, through communities of faith and, and other communal groups, to work with um, veterans to help them address those issues. Mm. That's, yeah, I, mean, I imagine that issue comes up a lot um, with military, um, with the mil in the military, because of the nature of the work, the nature of what they do, um, what people do. Um, I mean, to, it seems to me to be tied to issues of shame as well, and like shaming, shaming yourself, and wanting to punish yourself. Um, you know, wanting and thinking less of yourself, and those kind of issues as well. As well, um, I mean, what what kind of how does your work tie into this, Kate? Well, 
Well, um, for a long time, I fairly myopically focused on issues of depression and stress injury, which stress injury and depression both occur along a severity spectrum, but they really are, um, to varying degrees, treatable physiological conditions. Moral Mm. injury is a different animal. It's a more complicated animal. Um, Something as simple as, you know, we we joke in the Marine Corps about drinking the Kool-Aid, but you develop a passion for the organization that it's one of the reasons that the social and cultural identity is just so incredibly strong. For people who have a disappointing experience with an institution that they kind of pledged their their fealty to for life, uh, you know, which most of us do, you stay with an organization, you stay in a workplace long enough, somebody is going to disappoint you, something is going to let you down, um, or you're part of letting somebody down or letting something happen. The, the issues of disappointment, betrayal, shame leave a bruise on the psyche that's not a physiological mental illness. It's not, you know, it's not something that you can talk about as being a stress injury with a direct cause. It's much more complicated mm, yeah. and nuanced. So I feel like the, the issue is one that's only healed in community, in community of understanding. I think one of the most important places that this can happen is is, uh, is the faith community. Um, I think it's one of those, I have a, a colleague out of Missouri, you, you know, uh, Dr. Ham Murr, not, not Dr. Ham Nur, uh, very close, very close naming there. And he talks about moral injury as being a soul wound. And he talks about us as being spirit creatures and some kind of betrayal. And this can happen to anybody. This isn't just military. But betrayal and disappointment leave a bruise on the soul that is tough to diagnose, is tough to to change and grow past. So I think the whole understanding of moral injury, uh, and there's a wonderful new book out Um, that we've actually both been reading called What Have We Done by um, David Brooks. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it talks about the way that moral injury leaves an impact on individuals and it leaves an impact on the individuals who do the letting down, do the betraying. Um, And so this book in particular talks about the last 15 years of war, particularly in the domestic, you know, in the United States. What does it mean to be a civilian that was a part tacitly or actively incenting people deployment after deployment after deployment to combat zones what does that do to the civilian population um Mm. so some really interesting questions big questions sometimes overwhelming if you spend too much time uh too much time dwelling on them but i think it asks us once again to complicate the narrative beyond oh this is a mental health issue Mm. yeah i think i think absolutely i think we again it's um actually building relationships with people it's getting to know people and their story and their circumstances it always comes back to that and yeah actually i think everything we've talked about today comes back to that i think it comes back to um loving people and investing in people and building relationships with people and taking time to listen to them and to their stories and treating them not like you say not with pity and not with um, but also not kind of putting them on too big of a pedestal either, but just kind of loving them and listening to them and investing in them. 
and investing in those kind of relationships. And it means creating enough margin in our own lives as individuals, whatever our background is. We need enough margin in our own existence to offer somebody a listening ear, put the cell phone down and, and connect with somebody eyeball to eyeball. Um, when I think about putting, about relaxing, trying to improve my own work-life balance, I think about the kind of partner and parent and friend I want to be able to be to other people. And if there's no margin in your life, you can't offer that to someone else, much less receive it. So I think it's, um, you know, in, in so many ways, the need for social cohesion is also a call to just drop your membership in the cult of busyness and, and, and recognize the health mandate and the, you know, the social mandate to, to spend time connecting in a real, authentic, non-electronic way with other people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything kind of more you want to say, Carl, to, just to add to that kind of conclusion? Well, I think we have to recognize that as um, uh, collectively, I think this gets to what Kate was saying, is, is that... Um, if we help people reshape their personal narrative and, 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 and walk a path um, towards um, uh, whether it's self-forgiveness or just a better sense of, of, of their, their moral compass and, and that, that it, 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 it can be righted, it can be uh, fixed. And as we think about these journeys and think about as we partake in well, you're, you're looking at the concept in your book of, of the concept of grace. As we participate in blessing, we need to give birth to blessing around us. That's a paraphrase from um, uh, uh, one of the authors that I've been recently um, reading, um, Zara Renander, who's written a book on using labyrinths, and she's involved in these honor blocks. But I think that's a really important piece is to understand that veterans need an opportunity to give back and to share with the, the many positive things that they've gained from their roles uh, and that we need to be open and non-judgmental when we're listening to those narratives and accepting them and so that we can work with people um, to be uh, partners in that journey home. Yeah, I absolutely agree with all of that. Yeah, yeah, grace, grace for other people and building relationships and investing in them and um, listening um and yeah well this has been really really great it's really been a really great conversation um yeah i think i think everyone would have learned a lot listening to this i've, I've definitely learned a lot being part of this conversation so um, um thanks both of you for um your contributions um you're really 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 good really grateful so um thank you for having us yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to share and uh, to, to be able to further this conversation. Yeah, and we'll definitely have you back. Definitely, we'll talk, I think there's more to talk about, so uh, definitely have you back sometime. Um, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, oh. <laughs> now that we've got Skype down, we're good. Thank you so much. Yes. 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 We had technical problems from at the beginning of our recording, but uh, uh, beginning of our call, we always seem to have problems with that but um, we'll sort it out next time um okay everyone thanks for listening and uh, take care and we'll talk soon